about 10 years ago, I started an insurance company in the storage space um, where we do content insurance for renters. We've been the largest player in the space now for a long time. We, you know, we created from scratch, the largest competitor at the time. I just tried to work with them. Instead, uh, they didn't want anything to do with us. So we ended up uh, starting our own and now we're, we're selling over 500,000 policies a month. So reason we bring that up is, you know, we obviously have 50 jurisdictions we got to deal with on these laws and it is not easy. And you got to stay with it and you got to make sure you're not breaking any of the rules because if you do, they will not have compassion as they should not. And, uh, you know, your business could be in jeopardy. So it's really important to have a good, solid team around you that will keep you on the straight and narrow and make sure that you're in compliance at every step of the way. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now, I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Today, I'm talking with Ian Bernstein, an entrepreneur and investor with an extraordinary real estate track record specializing in acquisitions, development, management, and more. He is the co-founder and principal at SPM Advisors, which invests in multifamily, RV parks, self-storage, cannabis dispensary sale leasebacks, and other sectors. They have been a part of more than $500 million in transactions since 2015. He's also the co-founder and COO of Storage Pros Management, the co-founder and president of the Storage Business Owners Alliance, and has been an active principal in more than $2 billion of real estate investments. The list of other businesses, advisory roles, and real estate deals that Ian's been part of goes on and on. But today you'll get a chance to hear his inspiring story. We talk about his comeback from two major life-threatening setbacks, how he built and scaled a self-storage empire, and the pandemic-proof real estate asset class that's crushing it in 2022. That and a whole lot more. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Ian has a special gift for Lifestyle Investor Podcast listeners. He's giving away his top 10 rules of business, which condenses his 30 years of entrepreneurial wisdom and insights into a single document outlining the most important rules he's lived by to achieve incredible success in business and life. To get access to this gift, visit justindonald.com forward slash 82. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Ian Bernstein. What's up, Ian? So glad to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Justin. Always a pleasure. This is awesome. Well, you and I have had a chance to work together quite a bit. First, we really met each other through our investment community through Tiger 21 and have just kind of developed a friendship from there. And 
your reputation, as I vet people, your reputation just preceded you on so many levels. And it was cool having the president of Tiger 21 saying, wow, Ian's an amazing guy. you got to get to know him better. And I had several people in my vetting process that just had nothing but great things to say about you. So I just wanted to share that with you. Very kind. They're all lying, but very kind. (laughs) So I'm excited to talk to you today about really an incredible life journey that you've had. You have done so many cool things from a professional standpoint, as an entrepreneur, as an investor. You've reinvented yourself many times. You've also had some near-death experiences. And I know those have shaped and defined kind of who you are and where you're going and how you view life from a different lens. But I'd love to start just at the beginning with how you knew, how you figured out that you were going to be an entrepreneur and an investor. Yes, my parents, I knew ever since I was a kid. I mean, just literally lemonade stands, paper routes. You know, I would go in high school, I would buy, you know, Michigan, you know, hats, gloves and shirts and go sell them, at, you know, before the games on the, you know, in the parking lots. And I was, you know, always looking to, uh, to make money, loved. You know, I had a car washing business for a summer. I did, uh, and then in college, did really well making some t-shirts and posters. In fact, I made a t-shirt uh, when Michigan won the national basketball championship in '89. And you know, here I was, a freshman in college, and made, uh, you know, sold almost twenty thousand shirts, made you know just over twenty thousand dollars. And uh, as an eighteen-year-old kid in college, it felt like it was ten million dollars today. And uh, I just always knew I wanted to do it. And then. Going to college, always had some kind of business going. And then ultimately, I got to the end of college, and it was different than it is today. Like, you didn't really necessarily think about starting your own business. It wasn't near as common. And none of the jobs interested me. And as a backup, I had prepared to go to law school. And really, for lack of anything better to do, I went. Figured it would always help me. And then, you know, I got into real estate law, and that's where I met a bunch of people in that space. And I really liked real estate. And uh, I ended up going to work for a client. That's awesome. And and I just love this whole idea of earning $20,000 as a college student. And what's interesting is I was in the same boat because in college, I sold Cutco and I hustled really hard and uh, I was paying for my own education as well. And so, you know, for several summers, I had in that summer break earned close to, or in, in one summer over $20,000 and and you did it before me, you know, so inflated value, you've got me beat, but what an incredible feeling to just know that in college, you got your education covered. You can do all the fun stuff that you want to do. You're not limited. You get this taste of freedom at an early age that I think really has an impact later on where you want those same choices, that same freedom. You don't want to be put in a box where you can't have that. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, listen, I was a little more fortunate. I had my parents actually paying for my education, which was very lucky. And then to have that, you know, but they always, you know, they made me work. You know, I went to a private school in high school and, uh, you know, they had a lot of after school activities. My father actually was completely self-made made me petition the school to get out of some after school activities so I could work. And that really taught me unbelievable lessons. And most importantly, I think it just taught me how to get along with everybody. You know, I had a couple of jobs where I was the only one that had a car, right? Everybody else took the bus to work, taught me discipline, hard work, 
and just really appreciate what it takes to earn a dollar and really just appreciate how you've got to get along with everyone uh, out there, whether it's your boss, you know, whether it's a fellow person at a fruit market you're working with, or you got to be able to work with the waiters and waitresses when you're busing tables so you can maximize tips. Like you just got to find a way to uh, ingratiate yourself with people. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And I think you have become a master in that space because you don't just have friends, you have raving fans. People, you know, are just such loyal supporters, advocates, you know, they're just endeared. There's this this endearment to you. And I, I think that uh, your character, your reputation, you know, that's really the lens that they look through. And so for you, what what happened where you started getting into, I guess, what was your first, I know your first big thing was storage, self-storage, but was there something that was a segue before you got into that? And how did you get into it? So it's it's a great story. I mean, not a great story, but it's an interesting story. So I, almost everybody that here is in storage, especially back when I got into it, nobody kind of, you know, you don't grow up wanting to be in storage, right? Like you don't want to, you don't grow up as a kid and say, I can't wait to store stuff, right? I hated being a lawyer. I mean, I hate it. I was really good at bringing in business. I love negotiating deals. But when it came to sitting down and drafting documents, I don't have the attention span. I know that very much about myself now. As much as I would try at the time, you know, I'm just a big picture guy. I'm, you know, if you use the Gina Wickman EOS philosophy, I'm the visionary. I'm not the integrator. And so a couple of years in, I was bringing in a ton of business and I wasn't being compensated for it. And I realized I needed to control my own destiny. And so I had a bunch of clients that uh, at a young age, which I was very lucky to have. And uh, I started talking to a bunch of them about kind of what's next. And luckily, one of them who was in the paving and trucking business of all things, who they actually had a big real estate business on the side and they were developing subdivisions and industrial buildings. And uh, we contacted one another almost at the same time. We, you know, I was looking, they were looking and they brought me in. And literally, I left the law on a Friday you know, showed up on Monday for the new job. And while I was in transitioning from the job to the new career, I was helping these guys with a, a building they were going to put a new trucking facility on. And while I was still acting as their, you know, their lawyer, not their partner slash employee, we started talking about what else we could do with the land. And they actually said to me, you know, we're, we're paving and trucking for all these storage properties. There's got to be something to it. You know, Ian, why don't you go figure it out? And so literally first day of the job, called a consultant or two, uh, signed up to go to some uh, trade shows and instantly realized this is a real business, something we should be doing and uh, got into it right away. This is back in 2000. It was a great time to be getting into that business. You know, it's a very challenging business now relative to where it was uh, still a great industry. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's probably still one of the better performing if not the best performing uh, real estate asset class. But it's, uh, you know, when we got into it, very few people into it, very little sophistication, very little, you know, institutional money, only a couple of REITs, very fragmented. And now it's very difficult to buy at a competitive price because you've got all these institutions and private equity uh, firms bidding against you on every deal. So the likelihood of finding a good deal is becoming much more remote. Yeah, and it kind of is the 
I guess the lineage of what happens with all these different real estate asset classes where it starts out really unconsolidated. You have some mom and pops that own it. You've got a few people that come in that try and buy it. Eventually, when you have the big enough portfolios, your institutional owners and investors want to come in and gobble it up. They don't want to do the heavy lifting of like one at a time. They want to be buying portfolios of good size and so th- this that's is exactly what we did. That's exactly what we did. Right. And, and so it's interesting because I look at, as you know, I have had a lot of success in mobile home parks and RV parks, and that's really my bread and butter. But along the way, self-storage was really that, you know, like back in the day, it was an eyesore. There was a stigma, maybe not as great of a stigma, but it wasn't a sexy asset class. But it eventually became a very sexy asset class, as is the mobile home park and RV industry, um, because now you're looking at the numbers. You're not just looking at like, oh, I've got, you know, four walls, a door, a lock, I'm storing stuff. Or I've got, you know, a rundown mobile home that's, you know, in maybe a bad part of town. And it's it's totally shifted. So you're still at a point. So basically where... Self-storage is today is where I believe that mobile home parks and RV parks are going to be headed. They're not quite there. It's still the least consolidated asset class, but it's going to follow the path of self-storage, in my opinion. And that's what happened. Self-storage became more and more commercialized and more and more institutionalized. And you have these big players that came in that basically bought it all up. I mean, it's it's predominantly institutionally owned today, Right. Way more than it was. You know, you still have a lot of mom and pop operators out there. I haven't looked at the most recent data, but it, you know, at one point it was only you know four percent owned institutional. Now, last I checked, I mean, it was in the high teens. So it's definitely made a big shift and and getting more so there every day. Yeah, no doubt. So. How long did you stay with those guys? Did you stay there the whole time? Did you break off and do your own thing? How big did you build your portfolio before your exit? Uh, I'm curious on all the details. Yeah, so it was great. I mean, these guys were really good partners. They're still good friends to this day. You know, one of them is in my Tiger group, actually. Very close friend. And we built, we developed, built and managed three properties. And then we actually, I started third-party managing for quite a few others. We got into some other asset classes. And then in 2006, uh, negotiated a sale of the properties. We had did unbelievably well with those. Um, Nice timing. 06, nicely done. It was good. Well, even better uh, for me, not for them. Uh, But, uh, you know, we also, at the same time, I was, uh, I almost moved to Charlotte. Uh, we were doing, we had eight developments, residential developments in Charlotte. We had got in, must've been close to 2000 lots under contract. And then when I decided you know, kind of what they offered and what I was looking for didn't you know, align. So I decided to leave. And then uh, one of the partners didn't, uh, I said, if you're leaving, you got to sell us all your interests in the other, in the residential as well which I was very upset about. We negotiated you know, with lawyers for a long time and finally just decided to just get out. And uh, uh, in January of 07, I signed my interest over. I got a decent check and took my name off all the personal guarantees. Uh, you can imagine what happened after that. Wow. Not pretty. And, uh, and I was out. And so I met my new partner at the very end of 06 and we started in seven. 
and uh, bought 10 properties on the crash hit. We were in great shape. I like to believe that I'm one of the very few guys out there that did not renegotiate a single loan and didn't get any discounts on any loan. We were doing too well. I would have taken it at the time, but we couldn't even get them because we were doing too well. So I paid back every dollar I ever borrowed, ever. And we uh, all of a sudden, you know, a year goes by and we ended up, uh, you know, getting a, uh, the bank started contacting us because we were the only guys without a black mark on us. And so we started going crazy. Uh, from the end of 09, beginning of 13, we bought uh, just shy of 70 assets, probably 20 cents in the dollar. And we managed everything ourselves. I mean, I was on a plane, you know, four or five times a week, probably going all around the country. And we ended up, uh, all of a sudden, things started settling down. We refinanced everything. And uh, long story short, we we grew the portfolio to right around 100 properties. And we've since sold them all. Hey, congratulations on yet again, another exit. So that's three now that I'm counting. With that one, it was uh, a probably. That one we, so we had, we had a decent exit in 14, another one in 15. And then we had a couple decent ones along the way. And then uh, we had another big deal going right before COVID. We signed a huge contract and then they walked, you know, when COVID started. And then by October, we actually got an offer for 5 million more than we were offered back in, you know, February and we sold those. And so then we had a couple more left and we just sold those in the last six months. So, wow. So you're just totally out of that game with multiple exits. That's really exciting. I feel like most people, number one, most people never even get to scale. Number two, those that get to scale generally don't sell. They often don't sell at the price they want. And sometimes they're sold at a discount because they didn't structure things the right way. They used too much bridge loans and financing and maybe just timing was off. But you were able to have multiple exits, good timing, great timing. Uh, and, you know, 06, 07, great timing pre or mid COVID. Uh, I mean, just incredible to hear. And so in the process of doing all this, you had not one, but two, let's start with the first one, life threatening situations, a total scare where you were almost wiped off the planet. Yeah, no, uh, back in 2003, it was actually right after I lost my father uh, end of September, you know, which was a rough go. You know, he was a best friend, best man at my, uh, at my wedding. Um, and then Thanksgiving, I had this weird thing happen. I had this flu I couldn't kick and it was going on for a long time. Went to the doctor, like, you got the flu, nothing you can do, just rest. Of course, I didn't. And uh, on December 9th, and this, this carried on for like three weeks. Uh, December 9th, I actually, the day before, I went to go meet my wife for dinner. And I was early. I went to the bookstore. I literally, I couldn't read. Uh, I couldn't comprehend words. I figured I'm tired. Next day, I had a terrible headache. We were eight weeks pregnant with our first. And I uh, had just told my partners, you know, uh, paving trucking guys, Dan and Bruce. I just told them that we were, uh, we were pregnant. They were like the only ones that knew other than our family. And, um, we, uh, I drove home. I don't remember driving home. I guess I made myself dinner. I don't remember doing that. My wife, uh, and I always was up late working and she comes home. She was at a book club with friends of all things and, uh, comes home and I'm in bed. She thought that was weird. I left a mess in the kitchen, which I've never done before. And, uh, she woke up at night. I had a grand mal seizure. And so they, uh, they put me in a drug induced coma for eight days. I don't remember being awake the first four of them. 
And uh, when I got to the hospital, they had no idea what was going on. They told my wife, this is very serious. Uh, and for days they were like, well, if he makes it through, he's going to be here a long time learning how to walk, talk, read, write, tie his shoes, and it's going to be bad. And so kind of the first thing I remember coming to was they're like, right, you're going to be here a long time. And I'm like, I want to go home. And they're like, you can't even sit up. You can't feed yourself. You can't walk. And minutes later, I literally sat up, fed myself lunch, walked up and down the hall. And they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> People, the doctors that I see today that saw the case, they couldn't believe uh, that I survived, let alone kind of be able to come back in the way I have today. And But for a year, it was a really tough go. Uh, I was still having seizures. I couldn't handle a lot of sensory type items. And literally uh, six, seven months later, I was, uh, you know, I worked my tail off in occupational therapy. And six, seven months later, I'm doing third grade workbooks and I'm not getting the answers right. So I, mean, I couldn't do my job. My wife's meeting with my partners. They're like, uh, you know, Ian can't do his job. <laughs> like, uh, no kidding. Can't do anything at home either. So, uh, and, and it was very depressing too. And you're trying to hide it. It was a really, really tough year. Uh, but I made it through somehow. That's incredible. And I just can't believe the progress that you were able to have. You were, the doctors, the medical staff thought that you were going to die. They never thought you'd recover. You started recovering. It was not a fast recovery, right? You're talking seven months in and you're still doing third grade work and not getting it. And that had to be incredibly frustrating for a guy that overachieved and, you know, was, was an attorney and a real estate guy. And so how long until you felt like back to yourself? I mean, my wife would tell you it was 18 months. Okay. I mean, thank God. I was in great physical health before that. I just run a marathon. I was very committed to exercise and health. I'm like, now I was in great shape. So I think they think that that uh, was very much a factor that they saved me. Oh, I'm sure it was. And what are some of like the ahas that you had these, I would imagine that life forever changed. You make it through this, you make it through for a while, it's probably just survival. But once you get beyond that, What's the new perspective that you have? I feel like life has to become a lot more cherished and family has to become a lot more important through this process. Cause you're doing this as you had your first child. No, I literally, I mean, there were nights, you know, I do the night feeding and I'd be holding my kid thinking, holy shit, I almost didn't get to meet you. My daughter wouldn't have existed. Listen, it takes you to a whole nother place. Right. And so sometimes I, I, get disappointed with myself where I feel like maybe I don't even appreciate the severity of it. And then other times I feel like I really do. And it's really kind of guided me and, and, and put me in a, in a good position. But, you know, one of my main philosophies is to you know, live without regret. Right. And so um, that was one thing my father said to me when he told me about his diagnosis and said, you know, how disappointed he was to not meet my kids and leaving you know this world too early, but he doesn't have a single regret. That really resonated to me. And then I just, uh, you know, it's, you got to do a lot to bother me now. And so I, I just, you know, you talk about don't sweat the small stuff. I mean, that's like, you know, I don't use those words, but that's how I live. And, you know, if it's a question of, you know, should I do something? Should I not? Like, screw it. I'm going to do it. Right. Might not have that chance again. And so I would think that that was a very important principle on how, I've been with my family, my friends, 
and definitely in business, right? Like, okay, something doesn't necessarily work out in business. Okay. That's okay. No one died. Right. So I own several different businesses and one of them, you know, is a marketing business within the uh, storage industry. And I remember uh, an employee who still works with me you know, 10 years ago, you know, she sent out the wrong email to our entire database and came to me in tears. And, uh, and I said, okay, uh, are we out of business now? She's like, no. I said, anybody call complain? No. Anyone get hurt? No. Anyone lose any money? No. I said, okay, don't do it again. And she's like, that's it. You're not mad. I'm like, what's that going to do? Did you mean to do it? No. I said, okay, well now you won't make that mistake again. And it's a, it's not a huge deal. So something like that before I probably would have lost my mind. Yeah. It's really refreshing to hear kind of the relaxed laissez faire type of attitude and just way of living. I think your, your team just has to really enjoy that. It's powerful. You become very easy to be around because there aren't these triggers and you kind of get what you know, you, you get what you expect, uh, which is nice. So inside of this, we've got, you know, kind of a life-changing situation, trying to figure out, you know, what next steps are, a team that stayed with you through it, right? Your partners, which is great. You eventually move on. Hopefully this is all in the rear view mirror, but it's not necessarily right. So give us the next portion of this story. Yeah, no. So I, I knew this actually. So it's funny. Everyone always asks the two things connected with certain, you know, the, the, the brain thing was a form of encephalitis. It was all viral. It was just a fluke thing. But I knew right before that when I was 32, my mom had a disease called polycystic kidney disease. And so she told us like kind of right before she needed a transplant, just, and it's, you know, we had a 50, 50 chance of, of having it as well. Um, so I knew it was out there and I got tested. Sure enough, I had it. There's really nothing you can do, right? Polycystic, many cysts, these cysts grow in your kidneys till eventually it kills your kidney and you need a transplant. And it goes undiagnosed for a lot of people. So I knew I had it and, you know, I did everything you could do. I ate right. I kept my weight down. I exercised. I quit eating meat. You know, I was doing everything right. And then at age 46, I was really hoping, and I was on a drug trial too, which was not easy to handle, but uh, I figured out I'm, I'm going to make it into my 60s. My mom made it until she was late 50s. And I'm going to make it to my mid 60s. And, and that way I can just kind of have a normal life till then. And uh, all of a sudden, age 46, health went. And uh, every month, they were, I had to start going to the doctor every month. Every month, my numbers went down. Uh, September of 2016, I ended up uh, having bad enough results. I got on the list. And then all of a sudden, like within a year, it got real serious. And they wanted to get me a port to maybe start doing dialysis. My wife got tested. She was a perfect match. And I said, I, I can't take it. Uh, not right now. I said, I was like, kids this young. I said, something happened to you. I would literally rather be dead. And so she said, we got to promise you won't go on dialysis. You'll take it first. And I said, okay. So I literally went home. I got on, uh, I literally Googled shortest wait list for a kidney. And luckily the two, one was Madison, Wisconsin. The other one was Toledo, Ohio. I got right to the finish line with Madison. I decided it was just logistically too difficult. Toledo was only an hour and 20 minute drive for me. And I got on their list on a Tuesday, uh, what it was July you know, 24th, 5th, whatever, on the 26th. Uh, Friday, 
they called me with a kidney. Wow. Almost, and and I told them, I was like, literally for the last, you know, two years leading up to it, I would, I would wake up every morning. I would literally say this out loud. I said, you've been, you're a good, nice person. The universe is going to reward you with a kidney. And uh, sure enough, it did. Actually, uh, right here, uh, this is my uh, my donor. And he's my angel. And he was uh, a 26-year-old kid uh, from Fairborn, Ohio. I'd become real good friends with the, the family. And uh, he had an unfortunate early death at age 26. And the family made the brave decision to donate uh, his organs. And uh, first thing I do in the morning is thank Tyler. That is a powerful story. And what a great way to let his legacy live on with the picture right there in your office. And what a great way to just be reminded of the blessing that you have and just people that, uh, that are willing to, you know, just think about more so than just in that immediate situation and the, the benefit, the good that donating organs can do. It's incredible. It was amazing. I mean, the whole process, the whole community, you know, I give back. I'm on. I'm joining the board of the hospital. I'm on the the uh, Organ Donation Institute. I'm on, um, on the another national board out of Denver. Just want people to have the same good fortune that I did. Yeah, that that's incredible, and uh, it's it's neat seeing you be able to pay it forward as well. I just think that that's such a cool story, and there's going to be so many ripples of positive healing and blessing that come from that. Yeah, I hope so. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a special offer that I created for the lifestyle investor community. When I look back at my investing journey, there's one specific investment in particular that was the spark to increasing my net worth and allowing me to leave my job to become a lifestyle investor. I'm talking about mobile home parks. Yes, mobile home parks. If you just cringed a little, that's exactly why these provide such a great opportunity because of the negative stigma and stereotype people might have. In reality, this is an incredible investment that you can get into with little or no money down. You can also quickly get a return on your capital. You can immediately cash flow on day one. You can hold it forever as a cash cow. You get accelerated depreciation to reduce or eliminate the taxes that you would owe. And often the seller will finance the deal so you don't need a bank. You can also buy them at the highest cap rate of all real estate, meaning it's the cheapest real estate to buy based on the income that it generates. And it's the lowest default rate of all real estate, meaning it's the safest asset class to own in real estate. I use this asset class to start my journey in real estate investing and grow my net worth to over eight figures all before I turned 40. And out of all the questions that people ask me, how do I get into mobile home parks is still the number one question that I get, which is why I put together this mobile home park masterclass. This is a paid class that I'm offering for a limited time only. For all the details, head over to justindonald.com forward slash M-H-P, and watch the video, which outlines all the details about the class and exactly what you get when you sign up. You'll also hear the incredible success stories from students who have gone through my content and are now making hundreds of thousands of dollars in passive income. If you want to take the same first step that I did that helped me take both my wife and I from working full-time jobs to becoming lifestyle investors, 
Join me in my mobile home park masterclass and let's get started on your journey to becoming a lifestyle investor. Visit justindonald.com forward slash MHP for all the details. So you've got this new outlook on life. Life is this cherished commodity that you can lose. It can be over at any point in time. You're a young guy, you know, in your late 40s, you've got the second half of your life in front of you. So I'm curious, what are you up to today? I know you're, you've got a bunch of things that you're doing. Well, I like to say late 40s, <laughs> 52, but uh, no, so a lot, I mean, a little too much. You know, I've, I've joined up uh, the board of a lot of companies. I'm on the advisory board for four. I'm on the actual board for two. I, uh, I'm heavily committed to, we, we run a free medical clinic in my father's memory where we're giving away about $10 million to free healthcare a year. Um, we'll do about 8,000, 9,000 patient visits this year between dental, medical, free licensed pharmacy. We're now doing COVID vaccines and mental health visits as well. Uh, so amazing, amazing place. So I'm spending my time now. So I loved what about the thing I loved about storage uh, was kind of building up a portfolio and getting economies of scale, putting together the good teams. I don't plan on ever being the guy up front anymore, but I like to be the advisor and bringing in the equity and and having a say and a seat at the table. But um, we, we're doing a couple things. Number one, we we started uh, a business with uh, doing. Uh, sell these specs on cannabis dispensaries, which has been great. We've deployed about uh, 80 million of equity. And one of the things I've got most involved with is uh, uh, RV park business. Um, and to me, that's been amazing. Uh, it's storage, you know, 25 years ago, you know, very fragmented, very little institutional money. Banks don't necessarily get it. Uh, not a lot of sophisticated players, very, very, very fragmented with mom and pop owners. And the challenges with, with uh, management are, are intense. Uh, love that business. We've bought 18 parks in 10 states. And then I'm on a founding member of a, a bank board, which has been uh, really exciting to work on. And then uh, lastly, I'm with a very good childhood friend and somebody who was in my Tiger group with me. Uh, we're buying a minority share in a, in a uh, Amazon uh, accelerator. And it's really, uh, it's been a, a really good uh, it's going to be a great business. We're just finalizing all the docs now. Um, really fun, great business with some guys who really understand the space. So I got a lot. Yeah, you've got a ton going on, Ian. So uh, let, let's start first with the bank. I mean, it's incredibly difficult to start a bank. It's much easier to buy a charter, but to start a bank, and if you're starting, it's it's a de novo bank. I'd love to hear your you know, your explanation on what that is, what that means, why you're going the route that you are of starting versus buying a license or buying a charter rather. So it's a great question. So all of the de novo banks that have been started here, the community-based banks have done very well. A lot of them have grown and then merged with other banks. And so now uh, there's really not much of a presence for that kind of institution here locally. We, we've got a great board of phenomenal people who are very connected within the community and very diverse. And I think there's a definitive need for this. Um, you know, we'll do the traditional mortgages and lines of credit for local businesses, but, you know, I hope that we become a really top notch service oriented institution that can help like family offices or businesses, you know, be a good 
aid and partner rather than being a, a hindrance. I mean, up until the recession, I mean, banks were, the relationships were incredible, right? You had, you knew your banker, they would do things for you. They wouldn't normally do people because of the relationship. And that's really evaporated a lot. It's a little bit coming back. And I have one nice relationship with a larger institution here that, that definitely uh, goes above and beyond for me, but this is a little different. So the guy who's starting at the CEO is a guy by the name of Andy Meisner. Andy was a uh, former attorney as well. Our moms were best friends. Andy grew up where in Miami ends. And Andy's a special guy, politician. He was actually in the Michigan Senate and actually brought the film tax credits here to uh, Detroit, uh, to Michigan. He's a really great, talented guy, a really good relationship maker. In the last 12 years, he was the uh, Oakland County treasurer. Oakland County is the, one of the wealthiest counties in the country. He was the treasurer and did some really innovative things. And uh, when he came to me with this idea, he said, you name whatever you need, I'll do it. And so I joined the board. We're now in our, we're at the tail end of getting our approvals. Looks like it all looks good. You know, I had my FDIC interview the other day. Uh, everything looks very uh, good to go. And then now we're at the phase of you know, we're going to raise, uh, doing a $25 million raise, uh, you know, for equity to start our seed capital for the bank. And I'm hoping that we raise significantly more than we need. Well, it's interesting. The space, the banking space is just fascinating in general because, uh, number one, it operates a lot like what we've already been talking about, where you're having institutional players, the larger groups gobbling up the small groups. So never in, I guess, in the in the last century, have we been at a place where there's as few banks as there are today, because the big banks have gobbled up the small banks. And so it's, you know, a handful of them that that really kind of control things. So the number of banks is at an absolute minimum. But then you have all these new banks that are starting that are, you know, you've got a lot of these fintech banks that, you know, don't even have a physical location. This is all online, which is a fascinating concept. I mean, I've probably vetted six different bank deals here, like deep dive on six I've seen probably 15, 20, but like six that I really got into. And I love the idea of it with the right team, with the right scale. And so it's cool seeing that, you, that you're that you getting into it. But this is not for the faint of heart. This is a battle. This is tough. This is long. This takes four plus years. I mean, this is a grind. It, it should be much quicker than that. But, you know, I, I've kind of been a little battle tested. You know, we I, uh, about 10 years ago, I started an insurance company in the storage space. Um, where we do content insurance for renters. We've been the largest player in the space now for a long time. We, you know, we created from scratch, the largest competitor at the time. I just tried to work with them. Instead, uh, they didn't want anything to do with us. So we ended up uh, starting our own and now we're, we're selling over 500,000 policies a month. So reason me bringing that up is you know, we obviously have 50 jurisdictions we got to deal with on these laws and it is not easy. And you got to stay with it and you got to make sure you're not breaking any of the rules, because if you do, they will not have compassion as they should not. And, uh, you know, your business could be in jeopardy. So it's really important to have a good, solid team around you that will keep you on the straight and narrow and make sure that you're in compliance at every step of the way. Yeah, I ju- I'm excited for this project. I think this is going to be a home run. You've got a couple others, though, that I'm also very excited about. And I'm going to say even more excited about 
because just of my knowledge in this space and the things that I've already done from an investment standpoint, a diligent standpoint, and just my level of expertise in general. So you have created two funds, I mean, a series of funds, but currently two different kind of groupings. You've got Coach Capital, which specializes in kind of that lease back to cannabis companies, dispensaries, whatever it might be, where you have this, this investment in the real estate. So you don't own the you know dispensary. You don't own the cannabis company, but you have collateral that really protects your investment and you own the real estate that you then lease back to these companies. And we all know that there's kind of the wild, wild west right now in the cannabis space until it becomes federally legal. So that would be a fascinating one to talk about. And then after that, let's let's get into the other one, because I mean, you you have such unique niches of where your time and investment dollars and expertise is being spent. And no, it, listen, it all comes down to partners, right? It's really, if you have good partners, you, you feel good and comfortable about working together, right? Just, that's just, it's that simple. So the RV space, so starting with the cannabis guys who I know, who I've known for a while around town uh, came to me with this concept. And at first I was a little hesitant because number one, I did not want to be in a cannabis space for a long time. But then when, when I kind of understood that it was really just the real estate and they had come up with a really smart way to collateralize our debt. And so we take a security interest in the license. And so God forbid somebody defaults, we can insert somebody else under the same terms of the lease. You know, there'd be plenty of people waiting in line to come right into the spaces that we've allocated. So we find it's got to be good, well-located. We do it with vertically integrated owners because, you know, for example, in Michigan, it wasn't that long ago that it was 5,000 plus a pound for the flour. Now it's under a thousand, right? So if you're just growing and selling, that's a bad place to be. On the flip side, if you're just a dispensary and you don't have grow, there's a tax law called 280E from the IRS code, which does not um, allow you to deduct any expenses. And so it's killing these guys, right? You can't deduct anything. However, if you're vertically integrated, you got both. It's the best of all worlds, right? You're, you're growing for yourself to the cost less. You're still you're not, the prices aren't going down that much. They're going down for the end product, but not as much. And so you're able to be successful in many ways if you're vertically integrated. So that's why we stick with vertically integrated companies. So it's, it's, it's been great. In fact, uh, you and your investors will be happy. We just uh, just initiated a wire today where uh, the lifestyle investors are going to get back half their equity and fund too. So we just sold up property uh, on Thursday or Friday. Uh, and we're sending the money back today. Oh, it's fantastic. I, I love that. I always love it when uh, you know, you've got good things that happen and a lot sooner than what was presented. So I, I like the under-promise, over-deliver model. So I think that's really cool. Uh, something else to note is in this cannabis space, these licenses are worth $10 million to $100 million per license, depending on if you're in a state where they restrict the licenses. So it's a very powerful kind of uh, hammer, if you will, to, to get your clause into that as collateral. You're really mitigating that default. And if you do have a default, you're in a much better position. Like these are incredibly valuable. So I love that the way that you protect your investment. So it's not just about the upside. It's how do I not lose money and then still have good upside? 
No, no, it's great. And, and by the way, I will applaud my partners. You know, we thought we would deploy the money, you know, in 90, 120 days, and it's been far longer. It's been probably, it'll probably take three times that, right? And so we had to call our investors, let them know, you know, the pace has kind of slowed down. You know, we bought, we deployed, we bought 13 assets in the period of like two months. And then the last 10 have taken us a long time. And we're almost, we have a nice pipeline now, finally, we're going we're to finish up the fund. But our patience was absolutely rewarded because people who we lost deals to, we're seeing defaults and we're seeing, and, and they did loans, not sell leasebacks. So these defaults on their loans are going to be a problem. And so we stayed disciplined and we didn't give anything away. Oh, that's great. Well, congratulations there. I think you've got a new fund uh, that just opened. Maybe it closed already. I don't know, but excited for you know the future and the next opportunity. Let's talk a little bit about your RV fund, Great Escapes, because this has been kind of the surprise. Like I wasn't surprised that the lease back in the cannabis industry would do well. Makes tons of sense. I'm also not surprised that RV parks are doing well. But the surprise of what COVID did to the RV community and to people buying RVs and living off the grid a little bit more is just incredible. And so the the returns, the valuations have gone through the roof. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on why RV parks, why did you get involved and what does that look like? Yeah, RV parks are, again, they're storage 25 years ago, right? There's just such amazing upside. And, you know, it, there's a, a ton of unsophistication in the space. And so you, you're fine, like in storage right now, if you have money, you can open, you can buy a property. And there's a million people to manage it for you. That does not exist here. And it is way more expensive to build an RV park than it would be, you know, to build a self-storage facility for the most part. It's also a lack of sophistication. A lot of owners don't even have... Uh, Websites, they certainly don't do anything with dynamic pricing. They don't put money into the park because they're making enough. And there's a lot of mom and pops who own the parks and just, you know, they do not uh, want to do it anymore. They just don't. And so we're able to step in there, take over the park. We buy below replacement costs. Sometimes could we pay more than we should? Probably, but it doesn't matter to us because we usually go in and we will double, triple, quadruple the size of the park. We had in water parks, we had in golf car rentals and all kinds of activities. And, and generally speaking, we, we usually raise uh, revenue in the first year on average by over 70%. That's incredible. And, and having a lot of expertise in this space myself, I just love this industry. I think it's going to continue to boom. It was going to boom without COVID. Now COVID was like, you know, steroids and fuel being put on the, the flame. And it's cool seeing people just wanting this as part of their regular life. It's not just a, hey, let me let me do this this one time so I can act like, you know, I got a chance to do it. People are regularly doing this. Yeah, no, it's so two things. I, I would totally agree with you. So we were great before COVID. There's no question. Everything was great before. And we were in this before COVID. COVID put some wind you know, behind our sale. But also it exposed a lot of people to this type of travel which they're enjoying and they're continuing it. The second thing, which has been enormous is there's a technology. Once again, there is a a website called Outdoorsy, which is just like Airbnb for RVs. And so people who usually had these RVs that were sending them out, you know, going a couple of times a year are now leasing them out 
I mean, basically paying for the RV in almost the first year, certainly in the second year. And the same RV that was going out a couple times a summer is now going out 15, 20 times a summer. So when the demand was already way higher than the supply, now, if you're not booking these places far in advance for a weekend, you're going to be in trouble finding a location. That's right. And a lot of people are now just buying the RVs to rent them whenever they're not using them to cover the cost of what it is. It's it's an incredible place. And then with all the shortages going on, you've got this used market that's incredible, right? It, it's fascinating. We're destroying projections all over the place. We actually are doing the parks that we're doing with the model we're doing now, we're buying them and renovating them. We have, after we've owned them for two full seasons, we're refinancing, sending back all of the equity. And then uh, after you get back the equity, you're still making 15 to 20% on your initial investment. You, there's no reason to sell. If we sell, people will hurt us. So we'll sell eventually for a ridiculous amount of money, but the returns are insanely good. And this is by far the, the heaviest uh, concentration of investment dollars that I have in my portfolio. Yeah. And this is just one of those things where, uh, you know, I talk a lot with my network, my community about recession proof assets. You don't want to be in as much, you want some cash, but you don't want to be in all cash. You want to be in assets and you specifically want to be in assets where there is an underlying scarcity to it. It's hard to build them, hard to get the zoning, but then you also want it to be recession-proof. And we have found now that in the greatest economic displacement that most of us, many of us have seen, that this has been a very strong industry and, and just getting stronger. So, And I know you just opened up a new fund for this that you know probably is going to close here within, I think you said this month. So yeah, we got a little bit to go on that. We're doing 100 million on that fund. Uh, we've raised over 50 of it uh, in about 90 days, but we'll uh, that, that should be around a little bit longer. Yeah. Well, I'm thankful that you've been able to figure out how to not let anything keep you down and battle back. Uh, it's been great, you know, having the the privilege and opportunity to invest with you and. Uh, for me, that's important because I like to invest with my friends. And so I consider you a friend first and a partner second. I'm really excited for more people to learn from you, to learn your story. So where is the best place that people can uh, learn more about you or contact you if they have any interest in anything you're doing? Yeah, they can just email me at uh, ian at LLC. Perfect. We'll get that in the show notes. But Ian, this has just been an absolute blast. I love catching up with you. I love all the cool stuff that you're doing. Thanks for having me. It's it's always great talking to you. Always great. This is awesome. Well, I'm going to end our show today as I always do. And that's with one question. What is the one step you can take today to move towards financial freedom and living a life that's truly on your terms a life that you desire, one that is not by default, but rather by design. Looking forward to catching you next week. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. 
If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.